You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Our guest today is Alan Klein, who is the author of Embracing Life After Loss. Welcome to the show. Uh, so good to be here, you know, and I think it was George Burns, the comedian, who said, um, at my age, it's good to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the sake of context, where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Manhattan, New York City. Um, I grew up in the Bronx and lived there until I was a young man, I think about 21. And I moved out, got my own apartment. And um, it was in Manhattan. And then I got married and had a different apartment in Manhattan. And then moved to um, California with my wife uh to san francisco where i am now and have been for many years so in your formative years what was the role of faith in your life so i was born jewish my mom and pop are jewish um we did not really uh we were not really practicing jews maybe on the high holy days we would go to synagogue um but uh, you know, I look back, I think we were kind of a more spiritual family, you know, we were loving family and we kind of loved other people and respected other people, but there was no like formal religion. Yeah. So yeah. I've, I've noticed I was on your website and you've written a lot of books. At what time period in your life did you feel like writing was part of your calling in life? Well, you know, I thought about that just the other day. Um, when did I really start to become an author? And I realized it was in public school, PS 64 in the Bronx. <laughs> and I wrote a poem about the principal. And I also wrote a poem. And I had to get up and give that on stage at some assembly. But I also, my first published poem was about washing the dishes. <laughs> um, if you like, I could try to remember it. Yes, um, please. It, um, it was published in the school newspaper. It's a very simple, silly poem, but it was, um, I don't remember the poem, but the basis was my mother washes, my father um, dries, and I put the dishes away. <laughs> that, was, that was the simple little poem. <laughs> So that was my first published piece ever. That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So do you still write a lot of poems? I don't write any, actually. Um, I, I rhyme. Um, when I was growing up in New York City, when I was in high school, I went to every single Broadway show I could. I love Broadway live theater. Yeah. And so a lot particularly musicals. And so now, in fact, I did some this morning when I hear like a <laughs> phrase that might trigger a song from a Broadway show, I sing that tune, but I put in my own words. Huh. So in a way, I think that's kind of poems because I'm rhyming stuff, but yes, I don't write, I don't write it down. 
No. <laughs> not so not you're worth like a freestyler. <laughs> you like freestyling. Yeah. Freestyle, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That is that's so cool. Um, your book, Embracing Life After Loss. What was the motivation for writing that powerful book? Well, I should I guess first tell you how I got into um, hospice work and uh, why I wanted to write the book is um, my wife and I always, she was San Francisco. I was from New York City. We would visit her parents once or twice here. And I said to my wife, Ellen, I, you know, I saw those beautiful Victorian houses and I said, someday I want to live here and I want a Victorian house. Hmm. So um, we had a little incident in New York City where there was a fire in our apartment building. The landlord came by one day and gave us this pile of money to leave. <laughs> and I thought, okay, take the money and run. And we moved to San Francisco and we did get a Victorian house. And shortly after that, we found out that my wife had a terminal liver disease. Hmm. And she died three years later. And it was a very difficult three years, but she had a great sense of humor. Uh, I, I can give you one example of that. She had a copy of Playgirl magazine with the male nude centerfold. And she said, Alan, I really like this um, picture this month of this uh, nude male. And she said, why don't you put it on the bed by on the wall by the bed over there? And I said, Ellen, it's a hospital. <laughs> it's a little risque for that. <laughs> and she said, why don't you get a leaf from the plant over there and just cover up that part? <laughs> and Saul, I did that for the first day, did that for the second day. But by the third day, the leaf starts shriveling up. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so we came home from the hospital and we would just, remember that incident and we would start to laugh mm. and i realized that looking back that laughter it was only short you know five or ten seconds but it helped us rise above the situation yeah. gave us a reprieve gave us a different perspective and so i started to do research on the power the therapeutic value of humor and laughter and it was Norman Cousins' time. He was talking about healing himself with humor. And so um, um, I got the master's degree and my, in, in uh, therapeutic humor. And my first book was The Healing Power of Humor. Um, mm. So it came out of that um, difficult time. And I wanted to share with the, the reason I wrote the book is I wanted to share with the world, um, you know, that even in difficult situations, it doesn't just cover death and dying, but it covers or grief, but it does cover many situations. In almost any situation, humor could help us rise above it. And of course, when people are dying, when people are grieving, mm -hmm. You know, people say, how can you laugh at a time like that? And my thing is, it's it's such a it, laughter and tears are very close. And so why not take, you know, uh, take advantage of the laughter and don't squelch it or don't feel guilty. A lot of people feel guilty when they're laughing and yeah. after their loved one has died. But 
there's so many benefits to it that um, I think we need to honor that more and honor the moment. If you're laughing, you know, laugh about whatever's happening. Why do you think that in our culture, laughter uh, sometimes is, is looked, of, looked at, especially when somebody's mourning and grieving? Why is laughter looked at almost like a taboo? Well, I think people feel if they're laughing, they're not respecting the the deceased. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, w- which is very bizarre to me because when I was writing some of my books, I would interview people who were grieving. And um, I'd say, how would you want your loved one? How would they want you to live your life from now on? And I would say over 90% said, oh, I think my loved one would want me to go on with my life, to enjoy my life, to be happy, to laugh. And yet (laughs) people don't do that. Hmm. You know, there's a very interesting, let me get the correct name of the book. Um, Hmm. It's called Other Side of Sadness. Yeah, It's by George Bonanno. And in it, they uh, with his partner, Dasher Keltner, they did a research study over two years. And they interviewed people who were grieving, who lost a spouse, and just tracked how they were doing. And they asked them, you know, they found that those who were able to laugh during those two years did so much better than those who could not. Mm. 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 My God, that is, (laughs) that's powerful. I think the world needs to to know more about the healing power. That's why. <laughs> so uh, uh, the reason I wrote Embracing Life, you know, I, did, I have written many books, but uh, one of them is, is also about um, laughter in, in death and dying, the courage to laugh. But one of my favorite books I wrote is Embracing Life After Loss, because when, after my wife died, um, I looked for books that would help me get through it, books that would inspire me, books that would lift me up and encourage me to go on. And what I found, Saul, were these big, fat books that would tell me, oh, I might lose my appetite. I might lose my sleep. You know, I, I might be depressed. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm already going through all this. I don't need this. What I need is something that will, a book like, maybe like will hold my hand Mm. and help me, a book that I can just open it up and I could find an encouraging word or a paragraph or a quotation, something that will just, you know, be like my thought for the day that would help me get through the day or even the hour or even the next five minutes. Mm. And so that's why I wrote Embracing Life After Loss. It's a very simple um, book, as I just described. In this book, you have five steps for fully living life again after loss. And step one is losing. Can you explain more on that? Right. Well, first of all, I should say you probably know Kubler-Ross's work, and she had five stages of dying. And so I thought, I want five stages of living. (laughs) Uh, So all of mine begin with an L, losing, learning, letting go, living, and finally laughing. Mm. So losing, I think, you know, none of us, 
I'm sorry to say, and, and you listen, sorry to tell them, but you're not going to live forever. <laughs> it's just, it's just impossible. No one ever has. Yes. And then imagine if we did, can you imagine? I mean, there are countries in the world right now with people starving, children starving. If we never died, what would this world be like? There'd be no food, there'd be housing, jobs. Uh, it, so I know it's kind of bizarre to look at death this way, but it's kind of like nature's way of keeping things in balance. Mm. And, and we don't like it, but you know we have to, at some point, we need to, to go to make room for other things to grow in, in a sense. So um, I think at some point, you know, losing, we have to realize that death is part of life mm. and it's difficult and there's lots of tears and it's hard losing somebody, but it's, it's as natural as breathing. You know, it's just, it's just part of life. If you, I think Woody Allen said, birth is a fatal disease. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah. Because we'll die. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's it's um so so what does that teach us? Then actually the next thing is learning. What does that teach us? If we're gonna die someday, then we should be living more fully. Mm. Right? That mm. because you know, uh when was it last year in September? <clears throat> I had a wonderful lunch in a Japanese restaurant. And um, I was waiting for the check or I, I was just, oh, I know what happened. The car, <laughs> the car broke, um, broke down as soon as we parked it. And so we called the tow truck and we went to eat lunch and then we called the tow truck and they said they would be there in an hour. So we asked the restaurant if we can just sit there. So we were done with lunch and I was just sipping my tea. And all of a sudden I felt like I was going to pass out. And the next thing I knew, I was I was against a wall. I was passed out against the wall. And uh, paramedics came. I went to the emergency room. Everything was fine. It was a vagal nerve that connected to my intestines. And knock wood, I was fine. Mm. But when I look back, I realize, what if I didn't get wake up? That could have been my very final moment. We don't know. We don't know. Hmm. I mean, I had no control of that. I had a great lunch. I was chatting away. I was enjoying everything. And all of a sudden, I just, the room starts spinning and I was out. Hmm. So, you know, what is that? What is, I kept thinking, what is that telling me? And that's telling me is I need to do what I want, need to do now not wait, yeah. not say I'll do it tomorrow. Um, so death, death kind of um, makes life more precious. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soleil Berman. You're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with clients. Um, so learning, I mean, 
and you spoke powerfully because we cannot predict how life will be. We don't know when we will die. It could happen any moment, any second. And uh, so learning to accept, you know, that tragedies do happen, that our plans maybe may not even, you know, life might have different plans for us. Right. Yeah. So how do we learn and then live like today is a gift, like each day, each moment is a gift? Yeah. There's um, a wonderful uh, play called Our Town, written by Thornton Wilder. And this young teenage girl dies and goes to heaven. And then um, she asks the starkeeper, can she go back just one day, just one day to visit her family? And he gives her permission. So she goes back. They can't see her. But like I saw a play once they were doing this and the mother she goes back and the mother is cooking bacon on the stove and in the theater she was actually cooking bacon so you got this incredible smell of bacon <laughs> and and this like uh and the girl goes back to heaven and and realizes that um you know that i didn't appreciate you know i didn't appreciate my mother's cooking i didn't appreciate there was her brother she didn't appreciate him or her father and it's not the big moments she was talking about it was those little everyday you know washing the dishes kind of day um that she never stopped to appreciate hmm. and so there it was a great lesson when i see that play that um how much whizzes by us and we never stop, particularly today with cell phones, you know, and computers. It's just, we're, bit, you know, we're like this and we don't appreciate life. Um, so that, you know, learning and then letting go, mm. you know, you, um, people say, well, you know, my loved one died. How could, how could I let go of that? I, you know, I'm mourning of that. And yes, mm -hmm. we need to grieve. That's so important as, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have to get on with our life. Um, I was a hospice volunteer. And I remember I was assigned to this young woman, maybe mid thirties and her mom had died and she was distraught. And I worked with her for two years. And for two years, I could not get her to like get out of the house or to, you know, do something, um, get on with your life. And I thought, what a tragedy. This is a double tragedy. Hmm. Not only had the mother died, but the daughter's life basically stopped. Hmm. 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 And so at some point we have to let go. Okay, we love them. They're gone. You know, I don't think they wanted me to, to, you know, stop my life and get get on with get on with life. So people say, well, how do I do that? Yes. So in yeah, in the book, Embracing Life After Loss, I have a couple of couple of ways. One is I think really important um, is forgiveness. You know, when my wife died, I kept thinking, well, what you know, I could have done more. What could I have done? Mm. You know, I had to forgive myself. You know, I thought I did as much as possible. And, you know, we're not God. We can't control other people dying. Mm. Um, and then I had to forgive the doctor, the doctor who um, told her she had a terminal illness and she's going to die. 
you mm-hmm. know, the doctor that um, was afraid to tell her and stood at the door while she was in the in the bed, you know, stood many feet away rather than by the bedside to tell her bad news. Um, I had to forgive him. I had to forgive friends who were afraid. You know, my wife was 31 when all this started and 34 when she died. Mm. So a lot of her friends were afraid to visit, afraid to call on the phone, you know, because of their own fears of death. And so I had to forgive them. Um, There was just so many, you know, so many people and things, um, you know, that the doctors couldn't cure her. Uh, you know, or things that happened in the hospital. So I think in order to let go and, and move on, I think forgiveness could be a very powerful thing to do because so many things happen that you're probably angry about when your loved one is dying, you know. Uh, did did so. somebody tell you that or it just came natural for you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm amazed sometimes when I look back in my life, um, how, I don't know why, I just do it. And then I look back and I think, that was kind of the right thing to do. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. That was, and I, uh, I, I think it's more of a gut reaction. I, I, you know, coming from somewhere and I listen to it. I think other people may have that gut reaction or some higher power telling them stuff and they don't listen, Mm. you know? So I I was a meditator. So I think when you sit quietly and listen, you get the answers, you get, you know what to do. So after forgiveness, what was the next step? Um, I I just want to go back a minute or or actually on, on the subject about knowing what to do. So my wife, um, there was nothing more that doctors can do. My wife was in the hospital and she came home from the hospital. Um, her mother-in-law, uh, her mother was here, my mother-in-law. And I went out to get some food because I had been in the hospital all week. I slept in the room and um, I came back with the food and my mother-in-law was outside the door screaming, Ellen just died. Ellen just died. And I ran upstairs and Ellen had uh, fallen out of bed and she was on the floor when she died. And my mother-in-law was screaming, I'm going to call the undertaker, call the undertaker. Where's the number? And this is my point is my gut said, do not call the undertaker. Mm. Do not, Betty, do not call the undertaker. And I and I, uh, my daughter was, it was, Three o'clock, my daughter was coming home from school. Mm. I said, mommy died. Let's just sit with her. Mm. And that was a gut thing. I had no idea. You know, I didn't know what to do. Mm. What I did know was taking the body away immediately if my daughter hadn't seen it. I mean, imagine if my daughter came home and there was mommy was gone and that was it. I mean, Mm. that. And uh, I just felt we needed to say goodbye to her. And mm. so we sat there, I don't know, half hour maybe. And then I said to my mother-in-law, okay, call the undertaker. Mm. But you asked, how do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I know. Um, after um, my wife died, I said to my daughter, I think we need an adventure. Because mm we've been through three years of of difficulty and we went to a trip to Alaska 
and we went on seaplane rides and we went we went the whole ferry system and we we stayed by a glacier that was falling apart and we saw puffins and <laughs> uh, you know and we still talk about it today and it was like a first of all a bonding thing with my daughter second yeah. of all it was um taking our mind off what's happening happened and um you know and again it's how did i know to do that and i didn't have a lot of money so i we did the ferry system which was great um i don't know <laughs> why it was just something a gut feeling it looks like you you're a man who is in tune with your life and in tune with your real with your realities and well, then instantly you have you develop these rituals that actually are so impactful so profound and yeah. uh, it's powerful yeah. yeah i don't know why you know and i still i still do that i you know i when i don't know what to do and the other thing um sometimes when my daughter and i don't know like you know just simple things like which restaurant should we go to we'll, we'll go well let's 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 ask mommy you know which restaurant would she go to yeah. so we kind of <laughs> keep we keep her memory and her still in our life yes um so that's an important thing i think for people who are grieving that it's you know the person's body's gone but the spirit mm. their energy if you will is still with us yeah the concept of the continuing bond a continuing yeah. relationship uh that's powerful and then in 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 you go to step 3 which is letting go and right. that is really not easy many of us struggle with that um to let go how did you practice that in your personal life and uh your advice in the book right Well, one of the things that I think that could help people let go is to focus on I had added a, a teacher that once said to want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. Mm. To want what you don't have is to waste what you do have. So I guess it was a little while, not right away, but I would start looking at okay, my wife is gone, you know, I can't bring her back. But what do I have? And what am I grateful for? I'm grateful that I still my daughter, my daughter, my loving friends, my relatives, um my job, my house, <laughs> the city I lived in, I have food on the table. You know, I just start looking at all of the wonderful things in my life. Yes, I lost my wife. Um but I still had so much in my life to be grateful for. Mm. So I think you know it's yes death is difficult and losing someone's difficult but it doesn't mean that everything is gone. Mm. So it's important to take that inventory to see what is still there. I think so. Yeah. And the other thing um I guess this is going on the um the next thing to living living you know losing mm. learning letting go living about a year i guess i had a wait a year um i became a hospice volunteer and that was one of the most um uplifting most um 
thing that really got me out of grief, you know, help me move on because volunteering doesn't have to be for hospice, but volunteering is like you're helping someone else. So it's making you feel good and you're not thinking about your own problems, your own grief, you're, you're um, opening up to, to, you know, thinking about other people. And so for me, volunteering was a very powerful. Um, and then I also saw how people were dying and what beautiful um, moments that could be. I was with several people who died right there and how beautiful that could be sometimes. Yeah. And so that really helped me too. So how was volunteering in hospice? I remember I started my work in hospice actually as a volunteer. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, after that, I yeah. fell in love. I'm like, I need to do this. Yeah, And that of changed my, the direction of my life. But I'm wondering, how has volunteering in hospice changed you? Well, first of all, I realized um, when I went into someone's home, um, that I never knew what was going to happen, right? Or, you know, what dynamic would be happening in the household. And so I would um, usually sit in the car and I would center myself. So it kind of got me into, I saw how powerful preparation with meditation could be kind of just, you don't have to call it meditation, just kind of sit there and breathe and just open myself up to whatever's going to happen and just be there for the patient. Um, but I kind of prepared for that. And I also did a slight smile meditation. So I had a little smile. And so I'd walk in the house with a little smile. So, uh, cause sometimes you never know what was going to happen. <laughs> um, I also realized there could be um, humor there. I, uh, one of my very first patients, I'd go in, she'd be lying on the house, on the couch, the family would leave. She was watching TV, the dating game, and it was blaring away. And I tried to lower it and said, no, no, don't lower it. And I thought she was sleeping. She wasn't. Um, and then I said, is there anything I can do for you? And I was a volunteer, new volunteer, and I thought I would do anything she wants me to do. So is there anything I can do for you? And she said, do you know how to disco? So I thought, well, I'll do anything. I got up. <laughs> I danced around <laughs> the room. <laughs> and I sat down and I said, how'd you like that? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders and I said, I was kind of frustrated because I knew new volunteer. I want to help this person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I said, anything else I can do? And there was a long pause. And she said, you could leave. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't leave. The family hadn't come back. But yeah. um, they came back. I went to the hospice office almost in tears. And I told them the story. And they were hysterical with laughter because they said, if you had a camera in the corner of the room, see you discoing around the room, this dying lady to the music of dating game. I mean, it was like a comedy sketch. And I started, I started to laugh. So I also learned from hospice that, you know, it's not all sad. It's not, it's beautiful work. And um, 
uh, people in it. Uh, and, and the amazing thing, Saul, is that, you know, then I start exploring therapeutic humor and I, I became a very popular speaker in the hospice movement. I spoke at, um, oh, I don't know, maybe over 20 uh, state in the states, the uh, National Hospice Association. I spoke five times at the National Hospice Association convention, five mm -hmm. years in a row, um, and a lot of different state ones. They became my primary audience, um, mm -hmm. and they were just such... They were my favorite audience because they were, they knew how to cry and they knew how to laugh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saleh Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation. Uh, in your book, in Step 5, um, you talk a, a lot about laughing. And, and that's really powerful because um, in tragedy, we love to have the emotion of sadness. And we feel like that captures the emotion of the moment. But I think there's power in, in, in laughter as a healing tool. So could you talk more about that? I know you, you already spoke earlier about that, but yeah, could you expand on that? Yeah, well, um, anyone who knows the uh, TV episode of Chuckles the Clown, and she's at a funeral, and... Um, and something happens and she's the, the person giving the eulogy says something funny and she starts laughing and she can't stop laughing, but everybody thinks she's crying. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just, if you don't know, it's on YouTube, I think, Chuckles the Clown and uh, Mary Tyler Moore. And it, it's just shows us the um, connection between laughter and tears. Mm -hmm. Uh, which often happens, I think, at funerals. And also, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't believe in telling jokes, but often at funerals, bizarre things happen and we start to laugh, like people look in the coffin and go, oh, they never, they never look so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah. or um, I heard of a new minister who was, officiating at a funeral and he pointed to the body in the coffin he said this is only the shell the nut is gone <laughs> um oh, <laughs> so the point is there even in death and dying and grieving and funerals there is there is laughter yeah uh, and so to, yes, there's the tears, but also if the laughter comes up, you know, don't feel guilty about it because it's part of the healing process. And also just be open to the possibility there'll be tears and turn to laughter uh, or laughter and then tears. Uh, but it, it's part of the human natural um, way. I think. I think it's a, some higher powers given that ability to do that to, to help us heal. So if it is a healing mode, 
why push it aside mm. during those you know difficult times embrace it mm. i think it's important to to recognize it and to honor it to embrace it um, right. because at the end of the day life has to continue regardless of the the, the significant loss life has to continue and right. we have to find ways to continue to function right. because like you you had indicated before when you interview people you hear everyone say my loved one would want me to continue with my life they would want me to be happy they would want me to be successful they want me to continue with their legacy and right. sometimes uh, so yeah that is part of uh, that way of healing to be able to recognize yeah. the laughters in in the tragedies that we go through yeah. in life I remember my father's funeral um we as you know I don't know if we said it on air but earlier I we weren't a very religious family but it was a Jewish cemetery and we hired a rabbi that did not know the family well and during the family during the service he kept saying instead of Daniel Klein which is on <laughs> Klein is our last name yes I have a feeling he didn't erase the name on his whatever he was saying in those blank spaces it was from the last guy <laughs> and he kept saying Daniel Levine <laughs> Daniel Levine died and <laughs> my brother and I are like looking at each other and we don't know whether to laugh or cry <laughs> it was like <laughs> and we're like kind of chuckling under our breath we did <laughs> and everyone I'm sure everyone there they knew our name is not Levine where did this guy Daniel Levine come <laughs> from <laughs> um so the point is like just like in comedy this like this um incongruity happens in funerals you know that <laughs> and you and you start to laugh <laughs> i would laugh definitely <laughs> <laughs> so um where where can our listeners find your book and how can they get a hold of you well um my website is www.alanklein.com it's um they just have to spell both names right because there's different ways so it's a l l e n k l e i n not levine <laughs> <laughs> klein and the book any um major internet amazon barnes and noble bookshop um if they'd rather support a local bookstore which i love they could order it for you uh the healing power of humor uh, embracing life after loss which is what we were talking about and i have a new book i'd like to mention just came out not too long ago it was called one of the best spiritual books of the year it's called the awe a w e factor mm. and actually i think it would help people who are grieving because it shows them all the wonder and awe in the simplest little things in our life. Mm. So I think again it could help us take our mind off of um what we've lost and focus on what we still have. Powerful. What are your final thoughts? Oh, my final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um 
just that I think people were put on earth, and my wife used to say this, we're put on earth to play with each other, to have a good time. And so, um, you know, uh, you know, this, if, if you're grieving, this too will pass. And um, to try to do one wonderful thing for yourself every day. That was Alan Klein, who is the author of Embracing Life After Loss. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.